0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one of a kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Reset. What does safety look like to you? That's the question posed in the new book, No More Police, which explores new ways of thinking about public safety. What do we need to be safe? What threatens that safety? And what is the path forward? In No More Police, A Case for Abolition, scholars Mariam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie lay out their vision for a world without institutions that produce violence, and that includes law enforcement. We recently spoke with one of the authors of that book, Andrea Ritchie. Police abolition is a very contentious issue. We've seen huge backlash against calls for defunding the police. The defunding movement has been accused of being anarchists, What made you write this book now?
1: I think precisely to set the record straight, at least from our perspective, uh, the idea for the book came following an op-ed penned by my co-author, Mariam Kaba, for The New York Times at the height of the uprisings in 2020 that had the simple title, yes, we do want to abolish the police because at the time, demands to defund were being diluted and, you know framed as pretty much anything under the sun, and so we really wanted—so she wrote that op-ed to really kind of clarify her understanding of the demand of the streets and of the movements of that moment, and we took also wanted to sort of expand on uh, our understanding based on all the organizing we've been doing, not just over the last two years, but the past two decades, with Mm -hmm. folks on the ground who are looking to build safer communities.
0: Well, you start the book with a question, and I want to pose that same question to you, Andrea. When was the moment that you first started to question the violence of policing?
1: There are so many answers to that. There's so many different uh, time points, and certainly some of them involve times when I needed protection and didn't get it from police. Others involve time points when I experienced violence from police. Others involve time points when I saw people I cared about in my community experiencing police violence, and some involve spectacular moments of police violence. So for my generation, it was Rodney King, Taisha Miller, LaTanya Haggerty, Amadou Diallo. I think that for many of us, there are many points in time that we can point to along those lines. And they they bring us to a point that many of us were brought to in 2020 of saying this cannot continue. We need something else.
0: Just this week, President Biden was touting his safer American plan. That's his administration's plan to strengthen public safety. And here's what he had to say. And the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. And give them... We expect them to do everything. We expect them to, be, to protect us, to be psychologists, and to be sociologists. I mean, we expect you to do everything. So right off the bat there, he's saying fund and not defund the police. And his plan also includes hiring 100,000 officers and uh, increasing police funding across the country. So what's your reaction to that proposal?
1: Well, one, I thought it was quite propitious that on the day that he made that pronouncement, a book came out with a response. (laughs) So um, my response is the book. And also... um, I think it really highlights a little bit of what you were saying in your introduction, which is at this point, we are in contention for competing visions of the world to come. One is where everyone has what they need, access to housing, clean water, health care, education, living wage, employment, libraries, parks, and a sustainable future on this planet. And the other is one in which access to dwindling resources and increasingly every form of conflict, need, harm, or want will be met with more and more and more and more and more police and punishment and criminalization, and that we will continue to literally rob pandemic fund relief funds to put them into police coffers. We'll rob our children's future. We'll rob teachers and education and put money into policing. And And the fact that he Is framing it that way is he's recognizing that that is where we are, that we are at two competing visions for the future. And the Mm -hmm. fact that he has consistently felt like he has to respond to the demand to defund police and and directly oppose it shows the power of the idea in people's minds.
0: Yeah, dig further into that, because I know some folks listening, they may have only heard of defund the police just in the last couple of years. But this is far from a new movement, right, which is what you explore in this book. Talk about how far back this does go, this idea.
1: In many ways, it goes back to the abolition of slavery and W.E.B. Du Bois' arguments that we need to finish the work of abolishing slavery, which means abolishing its remnants, which includes institutions that perpetuate violence against Black people and communities and steal resources and opportunities. I think that the current manifestation can be traced back to the time when police started defunding education started defunding public services started defunding public health in the 90s as the prison population boomed and police uh boomed and biden was enacting the the crime bill and saying this is how we're going to respond to social problems including domestic violence and any other social problem is it's just going to be police that's going to be the answer and we're going to pour as many resources into that as possible and at the time Politicians were saying, well, if we're going to do this, we are going to have to cut education funding. We are going to have to cut funding for these other things. Now, I don't believe in that zero-sum game, but people have been resisting that from the 90s until now, including many of the folks we, we know well, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Critical Resistance, Insight, were all organizations that at that moment were saying no. We don't accept that. And certainly Mariam and and many of us were saying the same thing. No, we don't accept that we're going to defund education, libraries, healthcare, social services to fund police. We refuse that vision. And that's been going on for decades. I think we also build on the black radical tradition of the Panthers articulating that demand. And we took this demand also from incarcerated people who in the 70s were saying – there are things that we need in order to survive, and we want to defund the, the prison industrial complex to make it such that the conditions that put us in these cages don't exist anymore.
0: Mm. Tell us more about the grassroots actions that are taking place you know, around the country right now along this issue of, of challenging police brutality.
1: I mean, I would really invite folks to check out defundpolice.org, which highlights that communities across the country are having conversations at a level that we haven't seen before about what produces safety. The question that you referenced at the beginning is one that Mariam and I and, and many other folks ask people at the beginning of every meeting: What makes you feel safe? What do you need to feel safe? What? Um, remember a time when you felt safe? What was present? And often people are talking about relationships and and safe communities that involve everyone having housing and greenery and food and health care. And rarely does anybody say, oh, you know, a cop on every corner. (laughs) right?" And and people name their needs being met and being in relationship with other people. Those conversations are happening across the country and they continue to. They also are happening in budget um, hearings and council and state budget hearings across the country still. We're not seeing it as much in the news, but people are continuing to fight increases to police budgets and use of pandemic relief funds for policing instead of supporting people across the country in communities large and small. And people are continuing to practice and experiment with crisis response that doesn't involve police, and involves communities. To just today, there was a feature on folks in Durham who were mobilized or are putting out a non-police crisis response that... You know, involves care and it's called a community care team. And it's not about policing and punishment, it's about meeting people's needs. I know that's on the ballot in uh, this fall in Chicago, and it's certainly something that across the country people are working towards.
0: A lot of folks out there think abolition is just too extreme, that we still need police in order to stop the bad guys. So make the case why abolition and not reform?
1: Because one, we have evidence from centuries of trying to reform the police that it hasn't worked. So I don't know why we would keep throwing good money after bad and banging our head against the same wall when we time after time after time have these commissions and inquiries and blue-ribbon task forces and presidential commissions, and the same recommendations are put out, the same training and uh, policies are changed, and the same thing happens. And we've seen this in places like Minneapolis that had adopted all of the gold standard, best practice reforms, training and de-escalation, et cetera, including for the cop who killed George Floyd, had been trained to not do exactly what he did. So I think at some point we have to say, enough. Uh, secondly, I think that... Uh, the notion that you can change something that's actually doing what it's supposed to do is is also a sort of illusion that we need to break. And third, people are creating safety without policing now, everywhere. It's just that those opportunities are completely under-resourced and and completely dwarfed in terms of the resources and legitimacy and power they're given uh, by this insistence yeah. on investing in policing. Explain, so yeah. I think the, the case that we make is that you know, we, we have seen the result of attempting reform and we want to try something that will actually get us closer to community safety.
0: Explain this concept in the book of um, community control over police departments. Is that a viable option? I don't think so. I
1: don't think that there's a way of changing... Um, police departments to do something different. I think that community control is another reform that presumes that we can get police to behave in a different way when they're doing exactly what they were set out to do. And I think that uh, when we see that mayors can't control their police departments, I'm not sure how we think that you know an elected board of community members, many of whom are you know from targeted and vulnerable and criminalized communities, are going to uh, be able to control.
0: Sounds like a challenge. Yeah.
1: Exactly. They they operate as their own political power and they're not under anyone's control.
0: You know, in the book you also you condemn what you label as soft police. Who do you identify with that term and and what threats do you argue that they pose?
1: Anyone who uses violence or the threat of violence, and in that definition of violence, I include economic violence, violence of deprivation, of family separation, of exclusion, detention, deportation, or of forced, coerced medical treatment is someone who is engaging in policing. And so I think particularly in the context of you know thinking of new ways of responding to uh, mental health crises particularly, we want to be wary of not just delivering people who are of Unmet mental health needs and unmet needs generally into the hands of another system that's going to police and punish and contain them and control them in mm-hmm. different ways. So, for instance, recently in San Francisco, information came out about the fire department responding to people in mental health crisis or who were deemed disorderly and injecting them with medication that completely, you know, disabled them and and you know is is something that's used to put people to sleep for surgery right and so yeah. you might be using haldol or versed instead of handcuffs but you're still coercing containing and violating someone's bodily integrity to contain and control them so we're not trying to substitute one form of containment and control and violence with another
0: you've done uh, talks in the past you've also written extensively uh, about uh, police brutality against women and uh, people in the LGBTQ community, Andrea. um, You start off in your talks by making the point that almost universally we think of men, right? You know, Black men, especially, first, whenever we're asked to recall the names of victims of police brutality. Why do you think that is? And why is it important to recognize Black women as targets of police violence?
1: Well, simply because Black women... Lives Matter, and, um, you know, we can't continue to turn away from violence of policing wherever it happens and and whoever it happens to. uh, I think there's many reasons that we focus on um, cisgender, you know, black men who are presumed to be cisgender and and heterosexual. Um, But what I think is important to take away from this and why we wrote this book as, you know, black feminists and black feminist abolitionists is that when you look at the many ways that policing and police violence manifests in the lives of black women, girls, queer, and trans people, you see many more ways that policing operates. You see beyond killings to sexual violence by police. You see that racial profiling extends from streets into delivery rooms and hospitals, and um, it extends into the policing of parenthood, Mm -hmm. of uh, pregnancy, of, um, you know, sexuality and gender and reproductive autonomy in ways that we are seeing now very visibly through the criminalization of abortion and of trans and gender-affirming health care. And that's something that many of us have been organizing around for a long time because it manifests in how black women, particularly, are policed. So mm-hmm. I think that it gives us a lot more information and leads us a lot more quickly to the conclusion that we need to do away with policing because it is a form of violence. Um, that a community that's already experiencing disproportionate forms of violence are now targeted for by the state as well.
0: So with that said, what do you see then as the dominant forces or obstacles to this future that you lay out in your book?
1: You know, we talk about, I mean, there are many, and obviously police power and and the degree to which they operate as a political force is Mm -hmm. uh, primary among them, Uh, and Politicians who move that agenda forward. um, Second, but I think another one we talk a great deal about is the barriers of our own imagination. We have been shaped into belief into the condition to believe that policing is safety, and that we absolutely need to fix this institution because otherwise we will be in an untenable position. And. And we're not actually seeing the examples in front of our eyes every day that we can and do create safety every day for ourselves and each other without police or policing. And if we had more resources and uh, skill and institutions and relationships that promoted that and resourced that, we could do that across the board. And so we really need to believe and see, like take the time and energy to look around us and see how that's happening. Mm -hmm. Communities with many, many resources don't have police officers and respond to um, or they don't, they're not manifesting in the same way and people respond to each other and are able to take care of their needs and, and create conditions that are going to increase safety. And so I think that is the greatest barrier is the way in which, you know, propaganda, the propaganda that policing is the only way to safety has constrained our own imaginations that we can't see the truth that's right in front of us, which is that the opposite is
0: true. So you really think we can get there to this police-free future?
1: I believe that we can create a better vision of society where everyone has what they need to be safe, to survive and thrive, and that will ensure that um, we're able to live on this planet beyond (laughs) the current climate catastrophe. I have to believe that every single day um, because that's, that's the world that I long for, that I long for, for other survivors of violence, for other people living in communities that have been abandoned to violence, and for uh, society at large. I mean, we might not get there in my lifetime, for sure, but it's the world that I want to build toward. It's the, it's the vision of the world that I want to see.
0: Where do you think is doing this right as far as safety and, and law enforcement? Like, what city? What country?
1: We're all there's, there's billions of things happening everywhere, and I would really point people to uh, millionexperiments.com, a website that um, Interrupting Criminalization and Mariam Kaba envisioned, and Interrupting Criminalization created, that shows many people doing many millions of experiments. I mean, not millions, but at this point uh, that we've documented. But people everywhere are are creating safety for each other. I think we saw that in the pandemic. I think we see that every time there's a natural disaster. I think every time um, you know, someone gets up in the morning from a place where they're securely housed and has food and walks out into the world and does what they want to do and gets home at night safely and closes the door and goes to bed, we have created safety without police. And so I think there's we need to look around us and say, you know, where are we doing this well in our own lives and in our own communities and what's missing when when it's not going well? So- I think that there's there's no one place, and that's another argument we make in the book, there's no one size fits all solution. There are many solutions involving many people and many different conditions that get us closer to safety.
0: That's author Andrea Ritchie. Her new book, No More Police, a case for abolition, is out right now. Thank you so much for talking with us, Andrea.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Today's Reset was produced by Meha Ahmed and Brenda Ruiz. Ethan Schwab mixed this episode. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on local news, politics, arts and culture. We drop an episode in your feed every weekday afternoon. Plus Saturdays too. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Back with more tomorrow.